Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 8. We'll be looking at the last verse of chapter 8, and then we'll get into chapter 9. And as, uh, as we're turning there, finding our place, and I really would like for you to be able to see the text. If, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, or maybe you don't have the app downloaded, there should be a hardback black Bible around you, and Revelation is the last book in the book. So Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And this is our 24th week in studying this book, and we've got a long way to go before we finish it. And along the way, I've had a lot of good conversations with you guys about various things that my interpretation of this passage or this, that passage, and I know a lot of you have heard this book taught a different way, and some of the conversations have been geared around that. One of the things that I have received over and over is just a question of what can I read? What, what books or resources have been most helpful to you? And I don't want to necessarily give you the big... Um, you know, commentaries that I'm reading. I'll be glad to share with you some of those. Uh, G.K. Beale's New Testament uh, Greek commentary has been the most helpful for me. Um, there's been two or three others. I'll be glad to talk with you about this. But here are a few just simple books that uh, do a great job of uh, taking the arguments and putting them aside for the most part and just teaching you how to read the Revelation and come up with some of your own understanding. Uh, I will say this. This has been the book that I've cut my teeth on. This is More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. I read this when I was in seminary, and I was studying through this book, and this was the first guy that I read that really helped me to understand the book of the Revelation so that I could put his book away and go back and read the Bible and have a, a firm foundation upon which I could in, interpret and study the book myself. So highly recommend uh, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. It's just a little over 200 pages. Very, very helpful. Highly recommend this to you. I don't agree with him on everything, but I'm not going to agree with any one of these authors on everything, just so you know. A lot of the debates about the Revelation, they're all in-house debates, right? We can talk about our interpretation. All of them are, well, not all of them. Most of them are still within the bounds of orthodoxy, but um, this is a good one. Highly recommend that one to you. By the way, this is a copy from our library. If you don't have the $15 to buy one, you want to check it out of our library, I'll stick it back in there, or I'll have it up here when we're done. Another one that just came out recently by Thomas Schreiner. He's a, uh, a professor at Southern Seminary, and this is called The Joy of Hearing, A Theology of the Book of Revelation. If you never read anything by Thomas Schreiner, brilliant scholar, very helpful, highly recommend just about everything he's written uh, that I've read, at least I would recommend it. And this is not just a step-by-step, verse-by-verse treatment of the Revelation. It deals with the big theological themes of the Revelation, I highly recommend this one as well, The Joy of Hearing by Thomas Schreiner. And then last, and this might be one of the simplest to get through. If you're just looking for something that's easy to read, something you can do with your family, maybe with your spouse, maybe you've got a Bible study group, maybe in your home group you're looking to go through something, uh, The Returning King, A Guide to the Book of Revelation by Vern 
Poitras, Vern Poitras, also a very helpful, simple, slim down, quick treatment of the book. I've got more if you want more of this, but Mark, I'm just going to follow your lead and bring a bunch of books into the pulpit and recommend that turn, turn your devices off for a little while and pick up your Bible and maybe have a really good book alongside it. But these are three that I have found really helpful, and I'll be glad to talk with anybody about those at the end. All right. I hope I've given you plenty of time to find Revelation chapter 8. Look at the very last verse of the chapter, and we'll read this. John tells us, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 9, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tail. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to gather, to study, to read, to sing, and to hear your word. And I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through the preaching and teaching and reading of your word that you would fix our minds upon your word and that you would shape our hearts and mold us to be more like you and to more like, be more like Christ. I pray that you would allow the truth to change us and to dispel the lies that we believe or the lies that we've been told or the lies that we live by. I pray that you would move among us, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted and that you would bring affliction to those who need to be afflicted. For those who put their hope in this world or their hope in themselves, Lord, I pray that you would wrestle their hands away from that and you would help them by your Spirit to put their hope and trust in you and in you alone. Teach us now from your Word and help us to walk worthy of it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started this morning, I want to do something in my introduction. I want us to zoom out a little bit so that we can remember something of why this book was written or given to the church 
in the first place. If the, if the majority of the questions that I have gotten have been, what books can I read? The second uh, most prominent question that I'm getting is, uh, what, is, what do all these details have to do with the bigger picture? It's really easy for us as we study this to miss the big picture for the sake of all of the individual little details. And I want us to remember a few things that will help us to, to, to just grasp not the individual spots that we want to figure out, but what God is trying to show us as a whole. It's important for us to remember that the original readers of this revelation were suffering Christians in the first century. They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, very specifically. They were enduring the trials that come with living in this fallen and sinful world while following Jesus. And these suffering Christians were crying out to God. They wanted to understand how their experience of suffering and persecution fit into the plan of God. They longed to have assurance that their suffering was not in vain. They wanted to know that their prayers were being heard. And this book reveals to the suffering church that it may look as though the world is winning, but it is those who follow Christ who will find themselves coming out on top in the end. This book reveals the triumph of Christ over Satan, death, and sin. It describes in symbolic detail what was and what is and what is to come, right? Much of this book focuses on the spiritual dimensions of what is going on in the world. While the church is suffering in the, the physical reality of day-to-day -day life on earth, this book casts our attention to heaven and what is going on in the spiritual world with God and His angels and also with the, the demonic influence that is coursing through this world. It lifts the veil and it shows us the spiritual and the demonic realities of life. And as you might have deduced on your own, it reveals something of the spiritual forces of darkness and their work to stamp out our faith and how we, by virtue of our faith in Christ, can stay faithful and arm ourselves for that battle. This book shows us that the angels are around the throne of God in heaven and they are doing His bidding. It also shows us that the demonic horsemen who've been unleashed upon the world are behind the calamities plaguing humanity. But at every turn, this book reminds us that those these spiritual forces are at work and they are moving, it is God who remains upon His throne. God and the Lamb are still sovereign. They command men, they command angels, and they even keep demons on a leash. On every page, the revelation comforts us with the truth that all things are working together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And we can take comfort in this. The, this, this book tells us a big story. And we don't need to lose sight of the big story as we're reading in all of the little details. The Lord Jesus is still upon His throne. The church in the world is still under attack. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet are our enemies. And the judgment of God is already being poured out upon the world. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, all of which reveal something of the judgment of God, they remind us that God has not turned a blind eye to sin, and nor has He turned His back on His beloved people. 
As we continue to study this book, we will see and we should know that the days will get darker the closer we get to Christ's return. But as believers, we long for His return. Because what we know is that when He comes, our Savior wins and we will be conquerors alongside Him. That's the big picture of the story. And this morning, as we now have a little bit of that big picture, we can zoom back in on the details to try to see what God is revealing to us in this fifth trumpet. We're going to see what it contains. And what it contains is a, a, an image, a vision, and a lesson about a fallen star. And, and this fallen star is a he, and he's been given a key. We will learn about the abyss, the bottomless pit, and the darkness that comes from it, as well as these demonic locusts who have been uh, released so that they might torment unbelievers, specifically unbelievers. This is a dark trumpet, but there is much for us to gain in studying it. So you might remember that when we left off last week, uh, what we saw at the end of the fourth trumpet being blown is that darkness began to cover a portion of the earth. Darkness came, uh, and it's not a full darkness, it's a semi-darkness. And that darkness, I believe, and I taught this last week, it's the conclusion, the logical conclusion of the first three trumpets. In the first three trumpets, we were warned not to put our hope in worldly resources, not to put our hope in worldly kingdoms, and not to put our hope in worldly ideas. And if men do those things, the thing that comes is darkness. This spiritual darkness is meant to display and remind and reveal the fact that we are separated or unbelievers are separated from God and from the truth. But this is just the beginning of the darkness because when this particular trumpet is blown, more darkness pours into the earth. So let's look at this in some detail. Let's look at verse 13 again and see this woe that is issued to those who dwell on the earth. In this case, John not only sees something, but he hears something. He hears an eagle crying with a loud voice. And this eagle is flying directly overhead, and the eagle issues three woes. And there are three more trumpets that are going to be sounded, and those three trumpets are all referred to as woes. And so when he issues this threefold woe, he is warning us of something. And who is he warning? Well, he's warning those who dwell on the earth. And he tells them that at the blast of the other trumpets that the angels are about to blow, a woe will descend. Now what is a woe? What is that supposed to be? We see this all over the place in the Old Testament. We see it a little bit in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus gives us woes. He, he warns the Pharisees as he rebukes them. Uh, but a woe is just that. It's a warning. Generally, a woe refers to warning over one of two things, either something that has happened that's going to have an effect upon the people who are hearing the woe, the warning, or it's a warning about something that is about to happen. And in this case, the woe is a warning about what is about to happen. And what is about to happen is God is about to unleash judgment upon the unbelieving world. Throughout the Revelation, when you see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, it's a technical phrase. And it's referring very specifically in the context, it's referring to those who are unbelievers and who are idolaters. Every time you see that phrase, it's set apart as different from, it's a different group of people from those who believe. It's those who do not believe and those who are responsible for the persecution that the church is enduring. 
When John uses that phrase, he is referring to the unbelievers who have rejected Jesus and who have rejected his word. He is referring to those who have placed their hope and trust in the world, in worldly wisdom, in worldly leaders. They have made themselves the enemies of God, and as a result, they are subject to the judgment of God. And in this particular case, the judgment of God comes in the form of a demonic attack. The fact that an eagle issues the warning, it it adds to the, the symbolic foreboding, right? What is an eagle? Well, an eagle is a bird of prey. And when an eagle is circling overhead, we, we have, I don't know how many eagles we have in Texas, but it's not uncommon for you to see a buzzard or a series of buzzards flying around in the sky. And when you see that, you know that there's something dead underneath. But when an eagle is circling overhead, it's an indication that it's on the hunt. It's a bird of prey. And that's the symbolism here, is that the judgment is circling. It has locked itself into its target, and it's about to cup its wings, and it's about to plunge itself into its prey. That's what's about to happen. This sense of foreboding, it comes over in this. And it also tells us, because there's a shift, right? You've got the first four trumpets, and then you have this little uh, parenthetical warning, and then you have the next set of trumpets, And this lets us know that the first four trumpets were just getting things warmed up. What's to come in the next three trumpets is actually going to be worse than what has come before. What came before was God's judgment upon creation and God's judgment upon the sinful structures in the world. What is to come is God unleashing a demonic judgment upon the world. They have been unleashed to torment unbelievers, to make war against unbelievers, and then the end will come in this particular vision. So that's what the woe is warning us about. But what about the trumpet that's blown? Let's look at that. Let's look at this fifth trumpet. Look at verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now there is a ton of information right there in the verse that helps us to understand the the importance of this vision and what it's trying to symbolize for us. First of all, notice that John does not see this star falling from heaven to earth in present tense. He sees a star that has fallen from heaven to earth in perfect tense. It's referring to something that's happened in the past. So he doesn't see the star falling. He sees that the star has fallen, and that is important. Notice that the star is a he. This is not talking about an actual star. This is using symbolic language to describe a being, an animate being. The star is a he, and the star has been given a key, and that key symbolizes authority. Throughout the Revelation, when keys are referred to, they they symbolize a certain level of authority. And in this case, this fallen star, the he, has been given a key, authority, over the bottomless pit. Or in your Bible, you may see the word abyss. I think the best way to understand this vision is that it is referring to a fallen angel, a demon, who has been granted a measure of authority by God to punish those who do not have God's seal upon them. In other words, to punish the unbelieving world. 
In verse 11, if you skip ahead and look down with your eyes, we're given an even greater description of this being when he is referred to as the king of destruction. Two words, a Greek word and a Hebrew word, Abaddon and Apollyon, both of them mean destroy or destruction. This is who he is. This is the, the function that this particular fallen star has. This being rules over I believe, this is my interpretation of this, he has some measure of authority to rule over these demonic locusts that come out of the bottomless pit. And I believe that this language is largely symbolic. He has authority to punish sinful humanity, those who do not have the seal of God upon them. And this, we are to understand, is God's chosen method of judgment upon unbelievers. And by the way, we've seen that that pattern throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, that God will use whatever means He chooses to unload judgment upon unbelieving nations. He used Israel as an instrument of judgment. He used pagan nations against Israel as a tool of judgment. In Job, we learn that he keeps Satan on a leash and allows him a measure of torment over certain things to accomplish God's purpose. That's what we're seeing in this passage. That's what this fifth judgment is all about. I believe that this fallen star, more specifically, and I, I just said I believe, this is where I'm interpreting what I see, because the Scriptures don't make it very clear. You can disagree with me if you choose to, but I believe that this fallen star is a reference to Satan himself, who was cast out of heaven, as Jesus described in Luke chapter 10, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this passage in Revelation is telling us that Satan has been given a key over the realm of demonic spirits. That's what the abyss is a reference to. But the big picture is that ultimately it's God who is in control. God and the Lamb are controlling the movements of this being. And later on in the Revelation, we will see that God sends an angel to bind this being. But that's not come yet. So what does all this mean? This vision reveals that much of the wickedness and sin taking place in our world today are in fact animated by demonic influence. And this is not new to the New Testament. Satan and his forces are working to deceive the nations. Satan and his forces are working to destroy mankind. The spirit of Antichrist which John told us about in 1 John, that spirit of Antichrist is still active. By the way, John's the one who coined that phrase, Antichrist. In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 2, we read, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he's talking about those who are believers. To, to transfer that language into the revelation, he's talking about those who have the seal of God upon them those who've been born again by the power of the Spirit of God to believe in Christ, those are the ones who have the Spirit of God in them. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, John tells us, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John wrote that letter before he wrote the Revelation. The spirit of Antichrist was already in the world at that point. And he's warning the church. He's giving them an understanding of the spiritual realities behind everything that's moving in their lives. And he tells them, little children, you 
You who believe, you who have the Spirit of God in you, you are from God and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so while we're getting this picture of how God is judging unbelievers, we have this comfort from the Word of God that as believers, we will overcome. We have overcome. In fact, God puts a limit on these locusts and says, you can't harm my people. Not in the way that you can harm these unbelievers. The spiritual forces of darkness are at work in our world, but the seal of God is upon us who believe in Christ. The Spirit of God is within us, and He will enable us to overcome. But unbelievers don't have the same comfort. Look at verse 2. As the darkness is unleashed from this bottomless pit. He opened the shaft, that is the star who had fallen, who has the key. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the scorpions of the earth. Now this bottomless pit is actually, the, the, the Greek language is the, the word abyss, And it shows up in the Revelation seven times. For those of you who've been following how many many times we see something occur seven different times. And each time it's referred to in the Revelation, it is referred to, it's, it's referencing this abode of devils, this abode of demons. That's not the only way that it's used in the New Testament. At times it's used to refer to the abode of the dead. But Jesus used it as an understanding of this abode of demons. And throughout the Revelation, every time we see that word, it's being used as a reference to the abode of evil spirits. And I'll show you some passages of Scripture that make that more clear. When Jesus, you may remember this story in the Gospels, you remember when Jesus goes and he's casting out a demon and he asks the demon what his name is and the demon says, we are legion. And the demon begins to beg Jesus, don't cast us into the abyss. This, this is the same language. It's the language of something like a prison for evil spirits. And they beg him, don't send us into that prison. But the fallen star has a key. And a key is to this prison. And he has the ability given to him by God to unlock that and to loose these demons. So in this vision, I believe that these locusts are actually a reference, a symbolic reference to demonic spirits. Not helicopters and things like that. I just don't believe that that's the right interpretation. Ordinary locusts, what do they do? They eat grass, and God commands these locusts not to eat the grass, not to eat any of the fruit from the trees. These these are not ordinary locusts. They're symbolic of something else. Ordinary locusts do not wear crowns. Ordinary locusts do not have teeth like lions or hair like women. Ordinary locusts do not have scorpions stingers. And ordinary locusts do not torment unbelievers. They do not do the bidding of fallen angels. All of this is symbolic. It's a representation of the fact that God has unleashed the demonic forces to accomplish His judging purpose. These locusts devour the men and women in their path. They have hair like women and teeth like lions because they are seductive and they are ferocious. They spread lies, immorality, pain, and despair. They come out of the darkness and they take the darkness with them wherever they go. And once again, in the symbolism or in the language that's being used here in the Revelation, we see the echoes of the Exodus. 
In Exodus chapter 10, we read about the plague of locusts, and we see similarities. I'll I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. In Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come. And then the locust came over all the land of Egypt, and they covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. The language of locust and the language of darkness, John is pulling on that, and he's he's given it a new meaning. The darkness that is unleashed here is a reference to spiritual blindness. The locusts are a reference to demonic influence in the world that is serving to keep mankind in that darkness. Christ and His people bear the light of truth, but these demonic locusts, they have darkness in them and they spread the darkness wherever they go in their ideas and in their influence and everything. That's the picture, I believe, that John wants us to see as this trumpet is blown. And tragically, we have seen some of this demonic influence in our country even this week. When a murderous teenage boy enters a school to take the lives of helpless children, we see the face of evil and we should recognize the spiritual darkness behind it all. As Christians, we know, as Breck has been teaching us, as we read even this morning, we know that our battle is ultimately not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, to quote from Paul in Ephesians 6. And what Paul is doing there is he's, he's lifting the veil and he's saying, you see the flesh and blood realities that you live in day to day, but let me explain to you the spiritual realities behind this. These spiritual forces are at work. And they are corrupting the hearts of men and spreading lies. Lies like the ones this young man believed. And these lies are straight out of the pit of hell. The hell that he unleashed, this young man, that he unleashed upon these families is nothing short of demonic. The darkness that he carried in his heart was the result of the fact that the God of this world has blinded his mind and kept him from seeing the light of the knowledge of the truth. And he unleashed that darkness. The sting of these demonic locusts is being felt in our world today, and it is a sting that should cause unbelievers to see their sin and to turn from it and to trust in the only foundation that can actually withstand, and that is the foundation of Christ. This kind of sin, the only way to battle it, the only ultimate way to battle it, is to rely upon the one who has conquered it upon the cross. Now, I know that there's a lot that can be said here. Politicians are being blamed right now. Corporations and associations are being blamed right now. Fearful police officers are being blamed right now. And there's a lot that we should and must learn from what has happened. And there's plenty of blame to go around. But as believers in Christ, we can can try to have that nature versus nurture debate, but we know that deep down, this is caused by the evil of sin in the heart of a young man. And we can try to shape the the culture in such a way that we can rid ourselves of that, but it it is an empty attempt to ultimately undo the sin at the heart of this problem. 
A young man with evil in his heart is the one who perpetrated this hellish crime. At the end of the day, the root cause of this is sin. Sin against God, sin against the truth, sin against humanity, and the only remedy for sin is to repent of it and to trust in the one who gave his life to save us from it. Notice in the text that God says that these Demonic locusts, they have limits. They're accomplishing His purpose. They can't kill, but they can only torment. The humans they influence can, and they do. These locusts are forbidden from harming those who have the seal of God. Just as the plagues, again, we see this picture that takes us back to the Exodus, these locusts don't harm those who have the seal of God on them. Just like the locusts and the darkness and all the other plagues didn't harm the people of God. Those who are sealed by God, those who are trusting in God, and this is referring to those who are true Christians, who've truly been born again, whose hope is truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't keep men from trying to stir up anger. That doesn't keep these demonic influences from leading men and women to sin and wickedness and despair. Look at the end result. And I think the point that that John's trying to get at is that those ideas that inflame the wickedness in our world, that those concepts, that those beliefs that inflame the wickedness in our world, they ultimately lead here. Look at verse 6. And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. What is he trying to picture for us? He's trying to picture the despair of putting your hope in sinful worldly ideas, in demonic ideas. Satan works under the cover of darkness. He twists the truth and deceives mankind into believing lies. He offers an apple in exchange for paradise. Why would we trust him? He makes promises that he cannot keep. He blinds and deceives and deludes so that he can keep unbelievers in the dark and his efforts ultimately lead to despair and worse, the judgment of God. Have you ever felt yourself on the cusp of that type of despair? Have you ever felt your life was meaningless, that your life was futile? Have you ever wanted to give up to give up on family, to give up on friends, to give up on work? Have you ever lost heart to the degree that you longed for death? That is the influence of corruption, not the impact of truth. This is Satan's contribution to the psychological existence of man. He leads men to despair of life itself. He breeds suffering and hopelessness. And the answer to this dread caused by the spiritual forces of darkness, the answer in Scripture and in our hearts and coming from our mouths has to be the love of Christ. The love of Christ and the hope that He offers, the truth of the Gospel and the freedom that it it provides. This is our message This is our identity, and this is our calling to go forth and to preach the gospel when we find individuals, even now in the midst of what's happening in our culture. Yeah, we should listen, and yes, we should be open to all kinds of ideas, but ultimately, the hope that we offer is the hope of the gospel. Reconciliation with God, freedom from sin or forgiveness from sin, and a growing knowledge of the truth that helps us to see the world the way it should be seen. 
the suffering caused by this trumpet is meant to show the lost that they are separated from God in this world. It helps them to see their sin for what it is. It helps them to see the deep need of their soul so that they might hear the gospel turn from sin and trust in Christ. But, the last thing we'll talk about this morning, at least in this, and I'm not going to go through every little detail of the second half, but the picture shows us that these demonic locusts are preparing to go for war. Look at verse 7. We read an ongoing explanation of them, a description, and it says that in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Now you might, if you want to study this a little bit more, you might start in uh, Joel chapter 2, read verses 1 through 11. I believe that the description of these locusts is actually patterned after that. The more I read and study the Revelation, the more I come to understand that the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament is all over this book. You cannot halfway understand this book unless you go back and you read those stories and see the purpose and intent in those stories. But these demonic locusts are modeled after Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And the picture that John is painting is that these demons are preparing for war. They have armor in the breastplates of iron. They have weapons, the scorpion stings. They have their orders, which is to sting those who, uh, who, who are not sealed by God. And they even sound like, um, like uh, infantry. They sound like uh, war horses going into battle. All of this symbolism lets us know that these creatures are on the move. They are fierce and they are on the attack. And at their head stands their king, the king of destruction, the angel who rules over the bottomless pit. That's the picture. I don't know where you stand on this, but the Bible teaches with absolute clarity that Satan and demons are real, they are created spiritual beings who have moral understanding and high intelligence, but they do not possess physical bodies. Demons and evil angels sinned against God, and they now work continually in this world to spread evil, and they have limits. Satan and the demons wanted more than what God had given them, so they rebelled against him, and they were cast out of his presence to be kept, to be chained in that gloomy, dark abyss until the, chi- the time of judgment is to come. And I, I take that from two passages in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 4, we read this, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And I believe that what John is referring to here says that that time for them to come forth and and accomplish God's judging purpose has come. In Jude chapter 1, in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so this vision that we see in this trumpet being blown and all that comes is consistent with what we see in other passages in the New Testament to help us understand that these are demonic forces that have been unleashed upon the unbelieving world. 
They work to influence man internally. They work to oppress man externally. And in some cases, they are in complete control of their subjects, in which case the the individual is said to be demonized, which is the Bible's way of saying that that person is possessed. And all I'm doing is giving you a brief summary of what the Bible teaches about the spiritual forces at work in the world. And this fifth trumpet... I believe is warning the world that these forces have been unleashed. Now you may believe that they're going to be unleashed. I believe based upon what John teaches in 1 John and in other passages in the New Testament where where Jesus actually teaches these things, that they've already been unleashed upon our world. So what do we do? I've, I've given you all this detail. I've told you at the beginning to keep the big picture in mind and I've given you all this detail. What do we do? How do we respond to this? I've got four things. First, remember who is in control. Remember who is in control. Do we have any C.S. Lewis fans in the room? C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, points out that we have a tendency to fall into one of two categories with regard to demons. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The Bible makes clear their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Some see a demon behind every door, and others reject the notion of a spiritual realm, but the Scriptures confirm that these are created beings, they are very real, but they are not in control. In Ephesians 6, Read about the fact that Satan has schemes, plans that he employs in his efforts to torment mankind, but Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the one sitting upon the throne. They do his bidding. Satan's plans fail every day, but not one of God's plans has ever failed. Satan has his schemes, but we have Christ the Lamb who was slain for the sins of His people. And we are to clothe ourselves every day with the strength of His might and to utilize the weapons that He has given us and that Breck has been teaching on so so faithfully over the last 10 or 12 weeks. We need to remember who is in control. Secondly, we need to celebrate our salvation celebrate our salvation. Jesus taught his disciples this way in Luke chapter 10. He said, I saw Satan, I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. By the way, I think John is pulling on that language as well. Serpents, who's the, the ancient serpent, and scorpions, right? He's, he's basically, Jesus is saying, I've given you authority over these beings and over all of the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As believers, we should not fear these beings. As believers, we have to understand what the Bible teaches, that we are outside of the authority that God has given them to torment unbelievers. They are subject to us. We are not subject to them. The demonic forces may have authority over unbelievers in this age, but we as believers have authority over them. And yet, Jesus says, don't rejoice about that. 
Rejoice that your names are written in heaven and nothing can erase them. Celebrate your salvation. No matter what these beings try to do and no matter what the evil men and women in this world under their influence try to do, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can blot our names from God's book. Therefore, we should celebrate our salvation. Number three, make Christ known. Make Christ known. Why are we still here It's not just so that we can sit in these nice, comfortable chairs and you can listen to me explain or try to explain difficult things. It's so that we can be lights in a dark world that needs the light of truth. So that we can be ambassadors. Like Paul talked about himself. Even though he was in chains, he still saw himself as an ambassador. He was on a mission to proclaim the truth that comes from heaven so that this world could see and believe and be saved. We have a responsibility, and that is to make Christ known. Because the unbelievers in this story don't have the same protection that we do. This trumpet, I'm going to quote from one of those books I read earlier. This is from Joel Beakey's book on the Revelation. This trumpet warns that those who are not sealed or owned by Christ do not belong to Him. And if that is the case for you, you are wide open to demonic forces and influences. The teaching of the Bible is clear. If you do not belong to Christ today, then you must belong to Satan and his demons. Like Jesus said to his disciples, you are either for me or against me. That is how the Bible sees it, Beaky says. Not to be Christ is to be the devil's. If you are not, or if you are an unbeliever, if you do not have the seal of God upon your forehead, if you are not owned by Christ, then your life is vulnerable to infernal forces and powers that will destroy you forever. And this fifth trumpet warns you to ask whether your future is with Christ or with the devil. Our responsibility is not to shake our fist and say they will get what they deserve. Our responsibility is to, with a heart of compassion, to make the truth known in the hopes that unbelievers would be saved. And they too would be free from the torment of these beings. So, number four. We should first... We should remember who's in control. We should celebrate our salvation. We should work to make Christ known. And we should set our hope fully on Jesus. This passage and everything around it shows us that God rules over Satan. And and the weapon that God uses to drive him out is actually the gospel. It's actually the gospel. Satan is cast out every time the gospel is preached and sinners are born again to believe. Every time the love of Christ is proclaimed, the hands of the enemy are bound. And here's the picture, in case you don't get what's going on in the big picture, that into this world of devils and demonic influence, God didn't sit back and say, oh, I hope they figure it out. No, God entered into that. If you read the stories of Jesus, you read the Gospels, you will see that He did His own battle with Satan on our behalf. He walked right into this world 
as the Son of God, and this world is filled with devils, and He walked right into it to set us free from the darkness that they spread. He faced Satan in the wilderness, and He won. He came to show the love of God to the world. He came to live a sinless and righteous life in obedience to the Father. He came to give His life as a ransom for sinners like you and me. He died, He was buried, and yet He rose again. And when we trust in Him by faith, His merit is credited to us. And our story is written in heaven. Set your hope fully on Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. I'm going to go ahead to the end of the story and let's just let you know this. When the story unfolds in full, we read that Jesus crushes Satan right under his feet. For all of the influence for all of the darkness that he spreads, he's been crushed beneath the feet of Christ. And we who belong to him, we who trust in him by faith, the Bible tells us that we are more than conquerors because of Jesus. So friend, heed the warning of the fifth trumpet. Turn from your sin. Cry out to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. He is our only hope of escape. So set your hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that in the midst of trying to understand this word, you, you also give us an, an ability to at least have some understanding of what's going on. In-